Amen. All right, if you've got your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and get that out. And uh, if you'd like, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, We are kind of continuing uh, our look at overseers this week. We started on that uh, a little bit Um, last week. We really just looked at the word overseer, and we looked in Scripture, and we looked at three different terms specifically. We looked at overseer, we looked at elder, and then we looked at pastor. We saw that pastor, surprisingly, really only appears one time. It's this elder and overseer that appears more often than not. And we looked and saw that these are all synonyms. They're all the the same title, the same office. And the reason that we did that is we're fixing to read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're fixing to read about the qualifications for an overseer. And specifically, this is an office in the church that the Bible gives us as this is something that you should have in your church. We're going to look at deacons also. But as we look to this, it's really important for us to understand what an overseer is so that we understand why these qualifications matter. If we don't know what an overseer is, the reason for the qualifications isn't going to make a lot of sense. So we looked at what an overseer is, and this week we're going to look a little bit more in depth at this idea of overseers, but specifically what an overseer does. It's one thing to say, well, this is what it is, but what does it do. And there's some churches recently that have kind of sidestepped this distinction and said, like there's a big uh, debate in the SBC, I say big debate, it's a debate in the SBC about the ordination of female pastors. So most Baptist churches, especially traditionally historically, um, say according to the scriptures, we don't believe that that is a biblical way to handle that office. But then there's some that have said, Well, we don't ordain them as pastors, but as far as how they function in the church, they're pastors. So they separate this office, what it is, and what it does. And I think it's important for us to see in Scripture what the office is and what it does is the same thing. You can't separate those things. When we start to separate who we are from what we do, we create a lot of problems. We create a lot more problems than we fix that way. So I want to look specifically, we looked at what overseers, elders, pastors are. This week I want to look at what they do. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you two main functions that I see in Scripture with elders, overseers, pastors. And then we're going to unpack how both of those, fun- those functions ought to be carried out. Okay. So first function I'm going to give you, if you're taking notes, two functions for an overseer or for an elder pastor. The first function, they are responsible to rule. First thing that an elder, overseer, pastor does is rule. Okay? And our focus passage for this is going to be in 1 Peter. So again, 1 Timothy 3.1, we're looking at this office of overseer. Okay? So flip to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm using this to try to guide this discussion, and then we'll refer to some other scriptures to kind of flesh it out a little bit. First Peter chapter 5, and um, we'll start in verse 1 here. First Peter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and start reading here. I'm going to read 1 through 3, and then I'm going to read verse 5. So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So this is framing his exhortation. What's the exhortation? Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So the command is to shepherd. Everything that follows this clause is describing what does it mean to shepherd. Okay, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, comma, What does it look like to shepherd? Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter is talking to the churches. He's saying, all the elders among you shepherd the flock, and here's how you are to do that. These two verses, kind of two and three, unpack what it is to shepherd, but I want you to notice how it's done. They serve among the flock by overseeing. They do it gently. They serve willingly. They serve by example. They serve as a group, a group of elders. We'll look at in just a sec. And they serve with humility. So I want to unpack each of those one at a time. So I'm going to be getting you to turn a lot um, in, in the scriptures. If you would like to just write these down and turn later on your own and look at them, you can. Um, and you can listen to me talk, or if you have your Bible drill going on and you can do this, you can follow along with me. First passage is in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And in this passage, we talked about this a little bit last week, Paul is fixing to go to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to see these men one more time. So he calls for the elders in Ephesus. So this is this one church in Ephesus. And he calls the elders, plural, of the church. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, and then he gives this whole kind of ending speech. The observation here, and the reason I bring this up first, the observation here is that in the New Testament, there is not a single reference to a church having a single Elder, pastor, overseer. There's not a single reference. Okay? Challenge for you. Some of you are like, whenever a pastor says there's not a single, you're like, huh, challenge accepted, brother. Okay. There's not a single reference. The only exception is if someone is referring to themselves as an elder. So like Peter, in the book of First Peter we just looked at, I exhort the elders among you as an elder. He's referring to himself as an elder. But there's not a reference to a church saying this church has a single elder. What's the pattern that we see? And what are we going to see tonight? This is why I bring this up. Every reference where we see this, and there's a church, the church in Jerusalem. There's elders, plural, in Jerusalem. So this mantle of elder, overseer, pastor, what we see the first thing here is that it's as a group. There isn't a command stating that there must be multiple elders But that's the overwhelming pattern that we see. And I think it's intentionally. I think it's done intentionally. So I've listed this one first because as we go, I want you to be thinking, do I see that in this passage? Do I see that in this passage? And you'll see that unfold. 
So elders, overseers, pastors rule as a group. They also rule by example. So here we can turn to 1 Timothy again, but we're going to go to chapter 4. And we're going to kind of hit these lightly. We'll hit them more in depth as we come to them when we study the book. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to see that elders rule by example. I'm going to read verse 12 of chapter 4 and then verses 15 and 16. Verse 12 of chapter 4 says, Let no one despise you for your youth. Now again, Paul is talking to Timothy as a pastor. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, the rest of the church, an example. How? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then if you go down to verse 15, he says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, in other places in Scripture, we're commanded, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay? Even Paul, in another place, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There's this idea that we learn a little bit about how to do something by seeing it done by others. And elders, likewise, pastors, it says, must keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. The life of a pastor and the teaching of a pastor must be carefully protected. And what happens sometimes, especially as time progresses, we see pastors treating holiness less seriously. Holiness doesn't matter as much anymore. What matters is that we love God and love people. Kind of neglecting the idea that we love a holy God by seeing Him and saying, God, I want to be holy like you. That is love for God. But as these pastors start to move away from this in their lives, what's going to happen is their teaching will reflect that. As a pastor pursues holiness less, his teaching will come down because he doesn't want to teach against something that he's guilty of doing. We see this in churches sometimes where a pastor begins to have a moral failing. What typically happens is what follows that is the teaching starts to lax up a little bit. And it's because this pastor is struggling with this sin and struggles to remain faithful to God's word because it's going to convict. It's a real struggle. By making sure that the pastor's life is above reproach, they are freeing themselves to teach more faithfully what the Scriptures teach. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God. Really, really good book. He says this at one point. Ministers are noteworthy of their calling. All preachers are vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. In fact, the more faithful preachers are to the Word of God and their preaching, the more liable they are to the charge of of hypocrisy. I'm going to read that again. The more faithful preachers are to the word of God in their preaching, the more liable they are to the charge of hypocrisy. Why? Because the more faithful people are to the word of God, the higher the message is that they will preach. The higher the message, the further they will be from obeying it themselves. 
So a pastor, we want our pastors, our elders, overseers, to teach the Word of God faithfully. They will struggle with that if they are not pursuing holiness in their lives. So the instruction is, keep a close watch on your life and on your teaching. And by so doing this, you will save your hearers. So elders, overseers, pastors lead as a group by shepherding. They lead by example. Next, we see that they lead, they rule with gentleness. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45 for this one. This one doesn't specifically reference elders, overseers, or pastors, but you'll see the principle as we study it. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. This is Jesus talking to some of his disciples here. There's a dispute among a couple of them about whom gets to sit where at the wedding feast. And so in verse 42, Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those, this is in chapter 10, Mark 10, verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the idea here of ruling with gentleness, it's not just gentleness, but it's also humility and servitude. That is how elders, overseers, pastors lead and rule the church. I want you to look at the contrast between these two rulers in the passage. There's the Gentile rulers, and it says they lord it over others, and they exercise their authority over others. The commonality there is over others. It's this idea of casting a shadow over others. It's like you're standing up over them in ruling. But in contrast to that, these Christian rulers, likewise, or in contrast to that, the Christian rulers are supposed to serve others. So the difference is a matter of being over or under. This is the paradox of Christian leadership. The rest of the world rules by domineering, but the Christian leader leads by serving. And he references himself in this. Why do we do this? Because that's what Jesus does. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. So he is our model for how elders, overseers, pastors ought to rule. Instead of ruling over a congregation, they rule among a congregation. There's not this... Like you aren't to the level of an elder or an overseer or a pastor. We are all part of the body. They just have a different role. That's what it is. As an additional example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others 
also. I love the pattern that you see in these verses. You've got Paul, who is teaching Timothy how to lead the church. And then he commands Timothy, what I've taught you, entrust to other faithful men. Where do these faithful men come from? The congregation. Timothy gathers these faithful men. He's preaching and he notices these faithful men in the congregation. And he says, these brothers can carry out what we've started. So Paul teaches Timothy. Timothy finds these faithful men. And then his instruction is, teach these faithful men to teach others also. It's a chain of leadership that happens. Paul and Timothy are the only ones from outside the congregation. All the rest come from among the brothers. This is the idea of shepherding and pastoring with gentleness among and not over. And we'll look at that more in the qualifications as we continue to study This last one that we see here before we move on to the next function, how are they to rule elders or to rule willingly? And for this passage, we're going to be in uh, Philemon. There's only one chapter in Philemon. And um, we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. I'm going to read this and then I'll give an explanation here. So verse 8, accordingly... Though I am bold enough in Christ to commend you to, do, to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So I'm going to pause there. Paul is giving this command to Philemon and really the church earlier in the letter if you look. He's giving this command. He's going to be sending someone back to them to be received by them. And he starts off by saying, I could command you to do what's required, but out of love for you, I prefer to appeal to you. I'm not commanding, I'm appealing to you what you ought to do. So now verse 10, what does he appeal? I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own Accord. So Paul has an idea of what they ought to do, but he's not going to command them to do it because he wants their willingness to be obedient, to be genuine. He wants them to exhibit willingness and not compulsion. So, likewise, God desires elders to serve willingly and not under compulsion. That's what we saw in this First uh, Peter chapter 5 that we looked at earlier. He does not want them to serve under compulsion, but willingly. We see the same thing in Scripture when it talks about giving. Each one should give as he's decided in his heart, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. The same thing with those that rule over us. When we serve under compulsion, our hearts are not necessarily in the work, as they would be if we serve willingly. I've taken several youth trips, mission trips, You go, and you have all these students go, and they're there, and some of them really want to be there. Some of them are there because their parents make them. And we get to a place, and like, here's how you can serve on this mission trip. We're going to paint this facility. That is a scary thing, watching a whole bunch of youth paint a facility for someone. 
You know what I learned after that whole experience? I don't want them painting my house. Someone's like, oh, get the youth come help you paint. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> my heart is invested in the paint job that I perform on my own house in a way that it's not invested if I'm doing something for someone else. You see that with the students. You will see that in your shepherds. You don't want them to shepherd out of compulsion for shameful gain. Well, I'm doing this because of the money. Or I'm doing this because of the notoriety. You don't want that. You want elders whose heart is in serving you. That's what you want. And that's why there's the command here that they need to be able to serve willingly. You don't want someone who just wants a paycheck. You want someone who is emotionally invested. This is how an elder, overseer, pastor rules. Willingly, among the flock, with gentleness, sharing the load as a group. But there's one more major function here. Ruling is one function. The other function is teaching. So overseers, elders, pastors rule. And in Scripture we see that they teach. So here is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 17. And we'll look at this more in depth when we get there as we study the book, but I want to highlight this now. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So notice that both ruling and teaching are in view here. It's kind of implied that all elders rule. Now, not all elders rule well, but all elders rule. He says the ones that rule well are worthy of double honor. That kind of implies that there's some that, that they rule, but they're not doing so good. Okay, All of them rule, but what they don't all do is labor in preaching and teaching. He says, let all the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What this means is that there's some that don't have that labor. That's not their area of ruling within the church. Typically, if you go online and look, your church has a senior pastor, or you'll see teaching pastor. Some churches use elder, teaching elder, teaching pastor, and then pastor of discipleship and pastor of... There's usually one person that the church has said, this is going to be the guy that's teaching us. We sense this calling on his life to do this. Those guys, it says, are worthy of double honor in their teaching. So the idea is that all elders rule, but then there's going to be some that teach. They rule the church and they lead the church by teaching. Teaching is one of the ways that your pastors rule well. When they teach well the ruling well should follow. When they don't teach well, the church will fall apart. And we'll look, at, we'll look at why. How is teaching a way of ruling? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul is talking to them about how God has gifted the church with certain men to be able to equip the church for ministry. So I'm going to start reading Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we'll be in verses 11 through 16. I'm going to start in verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, if you're writing that down. It says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And that shepherds and teachers, 
The reason it's phrased like that is that most translators will put that together. The, the construction in the Greek, uh, if you look at that construction elsewhere, it's talking about two things that are lumped together. So shepherds and teachers, the pastor-teacher, why did he give them? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to reread again a few verses. Pay very careful attention here to how teaching helps the body function properly. Verse 12. He gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. As the shepherds teach, the saints, all of us, are equipped for the work of the ministry. We are equipped for the building up of the body. How long does this happen? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This happens until we all look the same. Grown, mature Christians. That's shorthand for saying, till we die. (laughs) This is going to be a lifelong struggle. We are not all going to achieve this perfect mature status. What we all are, what we are all going to do is pursue that. We all pursue that. And we do that through this teaching ministry of the pastors. They teach God's word, and as we submit to that, we all begin to have the same knowledge of God through the scriptures. And we all start to mature so that, he continues, we won't be children tossed about in the waves as these different doctrines come and hit you. The idea is that we grow in our doctrine, we're getting this teaching from doctrine, and we are able to plant ourselves so that whenever wind or waves come at us, we're not moved. I've taken several youth trips driving up through Oklahoma over to Colorado, and it's always interesting. You get behind this big vehicle, and you go from like Louisiana, where there's very little wind, to a place like that, and you can feel the wind almost just pushing your vehicle over to the side of the road. And that's the idea here. These other doctrines are these winds pushing in. And if we aren't mature and strong to stand, if we're just kind of this cowering infant, we're more likely to be swayed one way or the other. So how is that protected? Through the the shepherding teaching of the elders in the church. These pastors teach and, and guide. And as we grow and are mature, we're less likely to be moved by these things. Proper Godly, biblical teaching is the tool with which God shapes His church through faithful pastors. Without sound doctrine, we're just going to operate on opinion and speculation. 
That's not going to get us anywhere good. We need pastors who teach sound doctrine. So where you have ruling, and you have all these different ways that ruling manifests itself, with teaching, you have this primary focus. Teach sound doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's real simple. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, so that the man of God may be fully equipped. Chapter 4, therefore I exhort you, preach the word. That's it. That's it. We're not teaching opinion. We are teaching the word. Now there's one more function, kind of, but this isn't so much a specific function as much as it is the fuel for the ruling and the teaching. So I'm not listing this as a function, but it's in Scripture and I want you to see it. I don't want someone to be like, oh, you didn't mention that elders do this in Scripture. Okay, we're mentioning it now. And I would argue it's the most important because it fuels their ruling and their teaching. This last one that I'm going to mention that elder, we see elders do in Scripture is pray. Prayer. I'm going to read two passages here. Um, if you want to write these down and refer to them later, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. James 4, 13 through 16. And then I'm also going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Acts 6, 2 through 4. So here's the passage from James chapter 4, <clears throat> 13 through 16. I'm sorry, it's uh, chapter 5, typo there. It's not 4, it's 5. James 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So is anyone among you sick? Verse 14, what do you do? Call for the elders of the church and have them pray over you. That's actually a scriptural command. That, like That's a command here. Are you sick? Have the pastors pray over you. Sometimes I was raised in a household where you don't really share your business with a lot of people. You don't share how much you make with people. You don't share how much you paid for your vehicle with people. You don't share certain things with people. And I think sometimes we've adapted that mindset in the church and we say, well, you know, everyone's got their problems and I don't, you know, I'm not gonna. But if we are not confessing to one another and calling out to one another for prayer, we are actually disobeying the Bible. That, that's what we get from this. Is any one of you sick? Call for the elders and let them pray for you. I just read it. From, I just, I'll read it again if you want. Right here. Word for word. That's it. Now, here's what I don't think it's saying. You have the sniffles, better call Brother Garrett. He'll be over there in a jiffy. <laughs> I don't think that's what it's saying. But the idea is that they are in a desperate situation. They are sick. I say, Brother, I need you to pray with me. Okay, let's pray. I have a brother that I love. He is in Shreveport, 
close, close brother in Christ. And um, whenever we call and talk, it's not maybe once a month that we'll call and talk, but it's for about an hour and a half, two hours. And I love every time we talk without fail. We'll get to the end of the conversation, and he'll always beat me to the punch, and he'll say, look, I need to know what to pray for you about. And you know what's not acceptable to him? Uh, things are well, you know, I just pray. He's like, no, tell me what to pray for. Okay, I'll tell you what. We don't have a lot of peace right now. We're trying to find a house. We're anxious. You know, we're doing this. Would you pray for this? It's like, good. What else? <laughs> okay, here's what else you can pray for. This is what the elders ought to do. Why? Because the... Nope, I'm dead. Oh. Okay. Lord wants me to keep going. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. No powerful ministry will happen in this church without prayer. So we better be sure our elders, overseers, pastors are praying people. And to kind of add on to that, oh, so I didn't even read this other passage. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. We're going to refer back to this passage later in talking about deacons. Because I think that there's a model for deacons that we see here, though we don't technically see the word deacon. But what's important is how Peter describes his ministry as an elder um, and an apostle also. Uh, Acts chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, we'll appoint to this, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, and it gives the list there. So the idea is that the preachers, elders, are devoting themselves to two things primarily. The ministry of the word... But what's first? Prayer. Like their job, and sometimes there's a caricature. It's like, what do you do all day in the office? Just pray and read the Bible? There's a little bit more that goes into it than that. But that better be happening most of the time. We better be having a lot of that. E.M. Bounds, he's dead now, but he wrote several books on prayer. I had a pastor once that told me, look, if you want to buy a good theology book or a good book for ministry, find as many books you can that are still around by people who have already died. What? He said if they're dead and their books are still around, they're worth it. And this is one of those books. I have his uh, collection of books, E.M. Bounds on Prayer. If you are a reader, if you're not a reader, get the book and read it. It's so good. Here's a couple of quotes from him on prayer. The strongest one in Christ's kingdom is he who is the best knocker. This is so good. The secret of success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray. The secret of success. The one who can wield the power of prayer is the strong one, the holy one in Christ's kingdom. The most important lesson we can learn is how to pray. Then he says this talking about preachers. The preacher that prays indeed puts God into the work. God does not come into the preacher's work as a matter of course or on general principles, but he comes by prayer and special urgency. 
And then finally, he says, a prayerful ministry is the only ministry that brings the preacher into sympathy with the people. So elders, pastors, overseers rule and teach well when they pray well. So not technically a function, but vital. Summary, elders, pastors, overseers, what do they do? They are those who shepherd God's people with a gentle, humble, willing, exemplary spirit. Some of them teach, and they all have a shared authority, and their success will be found in their prayer. This is a high calling. And because this is a high calling, there has to be qualifications for this office. That's what we're going to study next. About time. We've been in verse 1 for long enough. That's what we're going to look at next. But this is a high calling. It is too high of a calling for the average man. It is too high of a calling for a single man to bear alone. It is too high of a calling for merely a man to bear alone. It is too high of a calling for us to just ignore. And yet it is a calling that God has given to certain men to lead the church faithfully. So let us pursue being faithful to this calling and let's treat it as seriously as God's words treats it as we continue in studying this book. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have gifted the church with shepherds, teachers, overseers, pastors, elders. I thank you that you've given us these men as examples to us of what it is to lead out in holiness and to serve others willingly, gently, not domineering, not ruling over with an iron fist but coming alongside of us and shepherding us as we all together run after you. Father, I pray that you would continue to call men in our church to fulfill this calling. That you would bring us men to serve our church with this calling. That you would bring us to a place where we are ready and willing to sit under good teaching, to be equipped for ministry by these godly men, to work together with them as we serve you in ministry. And most of all, God, we ask that you would help us to submit even more fully and truly to the rulership and the teaching of our chief shepherd and elder and pastor And that's Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right.